0: Revelation chapter 4. We have uh, took a little bit of a break to study the rapture of the church, and then, of course, we had the holidays, and so uh, we're going to return to our verse by verse study through Revelation 4 this morning. And just as a reminder, the theme of the book of Revelation is the the king is coming. You know, it's all about the king. Um, There's lots of events that we're talking about, but they all, you know, the focus always hones in on the king. And uh, just to again remind as well, the structure of the book of Revelation uh, is that Revelation is divided into three sections. John, when he is uh, being told by Jesus uh, what to say, Jesus tells him, Write the things which are, that's section, uh, Write the things which you have seen, section one, his vision of Christ in chapter one. Write the things that are now going on, that's part two, chapters two and three, the messages to the seven churches and then write the things that are happening after these things, the things that are after the things of the church, Uh, and that begins in chapter 4. And so, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we covered how John was taken up into heaven, into the throne room of God, uh, just as the church will be at the rapture. And uh, when John gets there, he sees what we're going to cover today. He sees everyone worshiping the king. Uh, That's what's going on in the throne room of God. And so, before we get started, though, I do want to warn you or let you know ahead of time that I will be making lots of references uh, to Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, and, and Exodus 24, and the reason being is because those are three other occasions in the Scripture where um, someone had a vision of the throne room of God, and so if you want to study more about this topic, uh, you can look at Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, and Exodus 24, because all three of them, you're going to find a lot of similarities to what we see here in Revelation chapter 4, so I won't be turning there because we'd end up doing a Bible study of all those passages as well, and we don't have time for that this morning. I'm just going to reference them, and you can kind of look it up on your own uh, on your own time. So Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, and Exodus 24. But here we are in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. It says, And Proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. So we see an interesting scene here in heaven, the throne room of God. John starts off by saying, and he that sat, and, and that is a phrase that refers to position, the idea that the one who is in the position of on the throne, um, this is a phrase that will be used all throughout the book of Revelation to describe the Lord, the one who is in the position on the throne. And, and it says it that way because it's a constant reminder that God is in charge. That's good to know today, isn't it? God is in charge. He calls the shots. When he decides to act, it it cannot be thwarted by angel or human. doesn't matter. So we see him on the throne here, and and John describes what he sees on the throne. He says he sees something that looks like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So we start here with these comparisons to a jasper and a sardine stone. A jasper is a translucent uh, red stone, and then the sardine is a, what we would call today is a carnelian, Uh, it's a translucent brownish red stone. Uh, It was called the sard or the sardine stone back then because it came from Sardis, a city we've already learned about earlier in Revelation because one of the churches, one of the messages to the churches was from that city. So he just sees this reddish kind of translucent glow, and then in addition to that, around the throne, he sees this rainbow, which is a, a, a halo or a circular band of light, but it's not like our rainbow that we would see, which is multicolored. This one is green, um, and, and it's around the throne of God, not like this, but, but around like this, almost like a hula hoop around the... I know that diminishes all of the glory of this, but kind of like a hula hoop around the throne of God. Um, and, and I bring this up because I think it's important to understand that John does not describe God's figure, God's shape, or God's dimensions because he doesn't actually see the Lord. He sees the glory and describes the glory around God's presence, around God's figure. And why is that important? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, the Bible very clearly tells us that no man has seen God at any time. In 1 Timothy 6.16 it says, referring to the Lord who alone has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So it's important to understand that while God is light, 1 John 1.5 tells us that it also says that his person or his essence uh, exists in a specific kind of light which is unapproachable by our mortal bodies. So it's almost like a barrier so no one comes, you know, close to the glory of God. So that rainbow that we look at has a little bit of a different uh, meaning here than the rainbow that God showed to Noah uh, to remind him that he would not destroy the world with water again. So uh, his person exists in a specific kind of light which is unapproachable by our mortal bodies. So though we cannot see God's person, it is possible to see that light and the glory that surrounds his person. And that's what Moses and the elders of Israel saw in Exodus 24.10. They describe a very similar type of light. Isaiah saw that in Isaiah chapter 6. And Ezekiel saw that glory, that light, in Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. In fact, Ezekiel makes it clear that what he saw was the sight of the glory of the Lord and not the Lord's person himself, not his figure or his person. So I bring that up because people will come to me sometimes and they'll say, Pastor Will, is this a contradiction? And there's no contradiction here, um, just like there is not in any of those other passages. So no man has... According to Scripture so far, we have no record of them ever seeing the figure or the person of God, Um, and any time we do see the Lord, like on the earth, that's Jesus. Uh, That's a whole other Bible study. I'm not going to get into that this morning. But verse 4, in addition to the throne that has this green halo around him and this reddish light of his glory, uh, verse 4 says that round about the throne, uh, this means encircling it on all sides, just like the halo, the green band of light, but it's not inside the band of light, it's outside the band of light. It says, are these 24 seats? Now, the word seats here is the same word for th- throne when it describes God's throne. I think probably the translators wanted to make it clear that we don't sit on God. God's throne, we rule and reign with Christ, and so they gave it a different word. But it's the same word um, in in the original language. Now, it mentions that sitting on these 24 thrones that are around God's throne are 24 elders clothed in white raiment, and they have crowns of gold on their heads. Uh, In the Old Testament, this word for elders is used to describe the tribal leaders of Israel. So frequently you will see, um, you know, the king talking to the elders or, you know, Samuel or other prophetic leaders talking to the elders. Um, So uh, that is a word used to describe them. In the New Testament, the word elder is used to describe, most of the time, uh, the pastoral leadership team at the church. Uh, Sometimes it describes someone who's older, your elders, but most of the time it refers to the pastoral leadership team. So who are these elders here? Well, we have to look at some of the other factors here to understand. It mentions there's 24 of them. Now, the only other time we see the number 24 is in 1 Chronicles 24, verses 1 through 19. I'm not going to read all of that because it's mostly family names. But in 1 Chronicles 24, 1 through 19, we see that the family of Aaron, remember the pre- high priestly family had grown so big that there were thousands of them, they could not all serve at the tabernacle in the temple at the same time. You know, they'd all be standing around doing nothing, most of them. So what David did is he divided the Family of Aaron up into 24 courses or 24 teams. And they would serve for a week and then the next course would roll in and they would, you know, they would do the job and then, you know, they would rotate. And so if, if you were part of the priestly family, you would only get to serve in the tabernacle of the temple two weeks out of the year, generally speaking. That's why it was such a big deal when John the Baptist's uh, father was able to serve in the, in the, in the holy place, uh, to offer in the holy place, because that was something then they had grown so much that they would actually, you would get picked to do it from the family that would serve in, in that one, one week. You might not get to go but once in your life to do that. So the idea here is that the number 24, biblically, uh, seems to represent Uh, it's a small group that represents a larger group. So you have a small group that's selected to represent the entire group there. So the question then still is, Is well, who are these, who is these, these people representing? Well, again, since they're not named, we have to derive what group they represent by the rest of their description. So we see here they're clothed in white raiment. Now, Revelation 3 verse 5 and Revelation 3 verse 18 tell us that the church will wear white raiment in heaven. Now, Revelation chapter, 9, uh, chapter 15, 6 says that angels are also clothed in white linen, uh, and then again we see the church clothed in white linen in Revelation 19, verses 8 and 14. So, it could be angels or it could be the church. So, we have to look at their final description to figure out which one of those two it is. And the final description says that they wear on their heads crowns of gold. Now, Revelation 2, verse 10, and Revelation 3, 11 tells us that the church will wear those crowns in heaven. Paul, James, and Peter in their letters encourage us as believers, members of the church, with the promise of these crowns in heaven if we're faithful to the Lord. Paul even explained his own personal motivation for faithful service because he's seeking to obtain this heavenly, what he calls crown, but it's the word Stephanos, a victory wreath, There are two words for crown in in the New Testament, the diadema, which is the kingly crown, the crown there that would normally be of metal, and then you have the uh, Stephanos, which is if you won in one of the public games, you would get this wreath that you'd wear on your head, and Paul explains. He goes, they do it for an incorruptible crown, those people who who work hard to, to win, but we do it for an incorruptible crown, one that won't fade away. You know, I get flowers for my wife sometimes, and, you know, she gets the flowers, and she, you know, eventually they die, of course, and, but she likes to preserve them. And if you're really careful, I guess you hang them a certain way, you know, they can preserve them a little bit. But every once in a while, they have to be moved. And what happens when you move them? They just crumble. They just they deteriorate. And these are corruptible things. We're going to have crowns that are going to last forever. And so here we see in heaven, this group has crowns of gold upon their heads, When we add in Jesus' promise of Revelation 3.21, which says, To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. And then their song in Revelation 5.9, which says, And they sung a new song, these are the 24 elders, saying, Thou art worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us. That's the elders. We have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. There's only one group that fits that description, and it's the Church of Jesus Christ. This is us. This might even be you. You might be one of you. Might be part of the. You know, you got selected to be in the group here. You might be seeing you in the Bible. Maybe not, but it's a thought. And, and this does bring up the question of whether John is actually being shown the future or he's transported to the future here. I'm going to be blunt and say I don't know the answer to that, and I think it's useless to speculate. Uh, and, and ultimately, we shouldn't because the focus of this chapter isn't us. The focus of everything in this chapter is the Lord. And so in chapter 5, we return right back to the throne. It's just telling us what's around the throne because we're focused on the throne. We're focused on the one on the throne. And it says in verse 5, out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Now, the word there, voices, we think of like, you know, whispers or things like that, but more than likely not like voices. The word there just means distinct sounds. When we think of our voice, it's distinct from just a, you know, um, you know, just a noise that's out there. Uh, We Choose to make noise most of the time, um, you know, and so the ideas of a distinct sound. When you read Exodus chapter nineteen, verse sixteen, when God's presence comes down on Mount Sinai, there is so many. There are so many similarities to what John sees here. In Exodus 19, 16, it says, and it came to pass in the third day in the morning that there were thunder and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that were in the camp trembled. So uh, most of the time we see these voices, it's described as trumpets in other places in Scripture when people see God's throne. So likely that's probably the case here as well. Um, But again, if you go back to Exodus 19 and you look at all the verses that come before the one I read and all after I read, it's all about the Lord warning people to keep their distance. It speaks of God's holiness, the thunder, the, the, the lightning, the voices, the trumpet. All of this speaks of God's holiness and power, you know, that He is not like us even though He loves us, that He is God and we are His creation. That's an important thing to recognize in your life. It's an important thing to recognize regularly that He is God and we are not, that He is my creator. And do you recognize that on a regular basis, that He is all-powerful, that He is all-perfect, that He is your creator, and that because He's your creator, He's worthy of your life? We should do that. Next, it mentions here that there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, and then it tells us what they are. They are the seven spirits of God. Lamps is probably more appropriate the word torches. Um, so he sees these seven torches, and again, um, these are things that were seen in the Old Testament. Ezekiel saw these same torches in his vision of God's throne in Ezekiel 1 verse 13, um, if we look at the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the temple in the Old Testament, um, it was supposed to be a earthly representation of God's heavenly throne room. Uh, for example, if you walked into the tabernacle, uh, the holy place, you would see the curtains there that were made to, to kind of outline the, the tabernacle. You would see interwoven within the curtains, angels, cherubims. And so the idea was, is you're seeing these angels, you know, moving around the throne of God, just like we're going to see in a moment here. To your right, you would see the table of showbread. Straight ahead, you would see the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies would be the mercy seat, which is God's throne. Then outside the curtain, you would see the golden altar of incense that represented our prayers coming before God's throne. But then to your left, you would see the golden menorah. That's interesting because the golden menorah, it was a candlestick, you could say. It was a representation. If this is a representation of God's throne room, what does it represent? Well, the menorah was a candlestick with seven stems, each one ending in a cup that was filled, filled with oil and then a wick, and they would be lit constantly. And that symbolized the work of God's Spirit in the nation of Israel, you know, that He was the one working in them, doing what was happening. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we would see the Holy Spirit right here in the throne room of God, because it's pictured that way as God describes the heavenly throne room uh, to us through the tabernacle. Now, you might be saying, well, why are there seven torches and why does it say they are the seven spirits of God? Isn't there one Holy Spirit? Yes, there's only one Holy Spirit. But this phrase, the seven spirits of God, is used multiple times in the book of Revelation and it's used to describe the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, when it describes how the Messiah, God will not hold back anything from the Messiah, but that the entire work of God's Spirit will be upon Him. He, uh, Like in the New Testament, it says that He does not give the Spirit to Jesus by measure. He, he got the fullness of God's Spirit. And so it mentions there the sevenfold working of God's Spirit in Isaiah 11, verse 2, where it says, and, you know, there shall be upon Him, calls Him the branch there, It shall be upon him, it says, I'm going to get there, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's number one. The Spirit of wisdom, number two. And of understanding, number three. Spirit of counsel, number four. And of might, number five. And then the Spirit of knowledge, number six. And of the fear of the Lord. So the idea here is there's only one Holy Spirit, but he has seven ways that he works in our lives. And Jesus, of course, did all that. So now we move to verse Six, and we see something else in front of God's throne. We see before the throne, so in front of, but again outside of the green halo around the throne, we see a sea of glass, it says, like unto crystal. Now, as I was reading through commentaries on this, they kept debating on whether it's an actual body of water or whether it's actual solid, like crystal. And and the problem is, though, is that in a later chapter in Revelation, we see people standing on it. And, and while Jesus did walk on water, we are not Jesus. And so, I, I don't think it's safe to assume it's an actual body of water. I think it's safe to assume it's something solid here. So, uh, it's a translucent, crystallized thing here that looks like a body of water. Now, again, we look in the Old Testament, and in Exodus 24.10, Moses and the elders, they see below God's feet, so below His throne, they see the glory of God there on Mount Sinai, and they describe it like a translucent sapphire, like a crystal. Ezekiel 1.26 describes a crystal-like body of water being held up by angels in front of God's throne. Now, again, if we look to the tabernacle, we see it there. We see this represented. It's actually called the sea sometimes in the Old Testament. It's called the brass laver. Remember the brass laver? It was kind of like the big tub where the priest would come and they would wash up after they would do all the sacrifices. And so... Um, Pastor, you're like, Pastor, you're ruining everything, a tub, a a hula hoop, this is horrible. It's okay, you'll you'll survive. But it was a reminder to them that they could not just leave the tabernacle after doing the the butchering work for the sacrifices and the offerings, uh, that they could just walk out, but they needed to, even they needed to be cleansed every day, every day. Now, what's very interesting is in the New Testament, this word is used a couple places, In James chapter 123, it's used. I want to read it to you because I think it's interesting. It says this For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man who beholds his natural face in a glass, that King James says we would normally think of as mirror, but the word is the same word used here in Revelation 4. That's very interesting to me. Because when you consider that, Revelation 15.2 tells us that the tribulation saints stand on this crystal sea. That's what they're standing on uh, in reference to the fact that they've gotten victory over the Antichrist. And then Revelation 12.11 tells us how they overcame the Antichrist. It says they did it by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, right? Isn't that interesting? So when we talk about how the the same word is used here, that that we're supposed to look at the word of God and not be hearers only, but to be doers of the word of God. And then Jesus talks about how the word of God, were washed in the cleansing of the water of the word, right? How He says to the disciples after he he washed their feet, yeah, before he washed their feet, actually, I don't remember what's before, but in that time of the Last Supper, he said, you are clean through the word I've spoken unto you, right? I think the sea of glass here represents the work of God's word in our lives, you know, and, and and again, seeing it uh, right before God's throne shows us the high status that God gives to his word. And that's told us in Scripture as well. In Psalm 138, verse 2, it says that God magnifies his word above his own name, right? I mean, God's name, it's the name above all names, right? I mean, it's, it's the Jewish people wouldn't even say his name. And yet he magnifies his word above his own name. How important is his word in our lives? Which brings us to another Good question. You know, does God's word have a high status in my life? That's a part of how we worship the Lord, that his word has a high status in our lives and we want to do what it says. It's part of our worship. Well, next here in verse six, we see something else. It says, and in the midst of the throne, so actually inside this green halo, and then round about the throne, so they're in motion, they're moving around, were, King James says, four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And that kind of conjures up a bestial image. Uh, But the word here, beast, just means living creature. These four creatures are four living beings. So these four living creatures are buzzing around the throne of God, and it mentions, this is a little weird, I'll admit, they are full of eyes on the front and on the back. So, I mean, this is just a, a, a creature that God made that has eyeballs everywhere. Now, if I wake up in the morning, you know, we have a bird and I go out there and he's got eyeballs everywhere, I'm going back to bed because that's like no creature I've ever seen. You know, I'm going to come back out later because something's wrong with me or it. These are very unique creatures. Ezekiel calls them the cherubim. Uh, Isaiah calls them the seraphim. I know people like to divide those two up. I don't have time to go into today, but I I don't think they're different. I think it just describes them in different ways. Um, But these creatures… Ezekiel 10 verse 12 also says they're full of eyes everywhere. Some have said, well, that means they're very intelligent because eyes speak of intelligence. I I don't know if that's the case here. Um, I'm sure that for the job requirement, you probably need a little bit of intelligence, but I don't know. It doesn't tell us why they're full of eyes. Um, It just means that seeing must be a very important part of their job because they can do it all the time. It also mentions something else a little strange as well. In verse 7, it says, in the first Uh, creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. The third creature had the face as a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And so uh, we know from Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 12 um, or 10 verse 14, that it says their faces were just like this. So it's not like one's a lion, one's an eagle, one looks like a person. It's their face is like that. So one has the face of a lion, you know, with the snout. One has uh, the face of a calf, you know, one has the face of a man, and, and uh, one has the face of an eagle. Um, again, it doesn't tell us why they have these faces. Um, we do know that a big part of their job in verse 8 is that they give glory to God and honor to God day and night. And so their job is to glorify the Lord, to reflect God's glory. And so some have suggested that their faces reflect um, all the aspects of Jesus, that, uh, and then as we see them reflected in the Gospels. For example, every Gospel has a purpose. Like, it's, not like, it's not like John just sat down and thought, well, I know we got three other Gospels, but we need one more, you know? Um, he wasn't just writing the same things. All of them had specific purposes for writing what they did. And so For example, Matthew's purpose is he's writing to prove to us that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel, that he is the king of the Jews. And so the lion, of course, is a kingly animal spoken of that way in Scripture. And so Matthew explains Jesus as the lion. Mark, his purpose is to show us as Jesus being not the king of Israel, but the suffering servant, the one who was going to come that Isaiah prophesied of, that would die for our sins, that would suffer in our place, that would serve us. And so the calf being the beast of burden, the beast of service, that represents Mark. I mean, it shows us, you know, uh, Jesus is shown to us in Mark. Luke, his gospel is designed to show us that Jesus is the perfect man. He's writing to Greeks who were always trying to figure out who the perfect man is or what the perfect man is like. And it's like Luke is saying, you do not search is over, here he is. Jesus is the son of man, the perfect man. And so you have the living creature with the face of a man. And then, of course, John, he tells us very clearly that the reason he wrote his gospel was to prove to us that Jesus is the son of God, that he is God in the flesh, and that we would trust him. Uh, with all our heart. And so John's gospel is that, they would say it, the eagle, You know, because rep- the eagle is a divine creature back then, and so it represents Christ's divinity. Um, that sounds great to me, sounds really cool. I don't know if that's true. It's also possible all these faces are just simply representations of all creation, uh, and, and that these four creatures are doing what all of us were created to do, which is to worship God, because that's what we see them do here. Look at verse 8. And the four creatures had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes. Those had eyes on it too. There's no escaping the eyes. And what do they do? They do not rest night or day. They don't have any stopping place, no substitutions, no replacements. Um, And They do not stop day and night doing what? Saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, holy, It's a word that is uniquely used to describe God. It refers to the fact that he is morally pure, that he's divine, that he's unique and set apart, distinct from us. They say it three times to show God's absolute holiness as well as to show his triune nature. And they say it day and night because God is always absolutely holy. God is always morally pure. He never makes a mistake. God is always divine. He's always God, never ceases to be so. And God is always different than us. They go on to say, holy, 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 who? Lord God Almighty. Lord means ruler, owner, master, commander. He is the one who has all authority. God Almighty. He is the one who has all power. The God who has all power. And then they describe him as which was and is and is to come the God who is eternal, the one who has always been and always will be. You see, God is not a created being. He existed before time. He is intimately involved in time and He will go on doing so long after the world as we know it is gone. And God, Almighty, the Lord, He has all authority and all the power to enforce that authority at all times. And yet, He is holy. He never abuses that authority or power. He is different from us. He is both pure and righteous and loving and merciful all at the same time. And that's why the incarnation is so important, that the God who is holy and perfect stepped into our world and became a man. He is loving and merciful. He came and he lived in the muck and mire we made of his creation through sin. But instead of wiping us out, he went to the cross It's why we use John 3.16 so much and we tell everyone God so loved the world, God so loved you that he sent his son whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's why we sing a song called Amazing Grace because grace is out of this world. It's amazing. And it's why we see the church respond by erupting in worship when they say these words verse 9, it says, And when those creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, he lives forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and they worship him that lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. Here we see worship in heaven, not just from the angels, but from people, from us. There are many ways that we worship the Lord. One of the first ways we worship the Lord is with our lips. It mentions that these creatures give glory and honor and thanks. They do this with their lips to him that sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. Glory, it means to speak of something as being unusually fine. It's praise. They praise God as there's nothing comparable. You know, um, I have learned over the years that there are certain ways you don't respond when your wife says to you, how do you think I look? One word not to use is okay. Don't say she looks okay. Another word, unless you do it in a really cool way is don't say it looks fine like you can say you look mighty fine and that's okay but that's what we're saying here the idea of you are unusually fine you are uniquely fine but don't just go oh it looks fine that's not a good one not a good response you know and if that's what you're thinking lie come up with something better okay (laughs) pastor told me to lie he's blaspheming God's throne calling it a hula hoop I'm out. The idea here is praise, something that's praise, something that, you know, if you were to tell someone that they kind of would begin to beam, you know. God doesn't need that from us, but we do it because he's worthy of it. We, part of worship is invoking, it involves giving praise to God. It means telling God how there's no one else like him. It means telling God how awesome he is and why that's true, why he's so awesome. We should be doing that with our lips. We should be, we can worship God with our lips by giving honor to God. It means to assign a high status to a person. How do we honor God with our lips? How do we assign a high status to God with our lips? Well, it means you tell him that. We say it, we give you the highest praise, right? You know, we praised him, you know, but we, we said, we give you the highest praise. We honored God with our lips. You know, we honor God with our lips when we, when we make a commitment to surrender to him, you know? I lift my hands because I'm, I surrender, right? We we're honoring God with our lips when we do that. We honor God with our lips when we make a decision to obey Him, when we tell Him and say, Lord, I want to obey You in this area. We, make, we honor God with our lips when we confess our sin before His throne of grace. We're worshiping Him by honoring Him. And, of course, we worship the Lord by giving thanks with our lips. Worshiping God involves giving thanks to Him thanking God for who he is, what he has done, and what he promises he will do. Which brings us to another question. Do you give honor and praise and thanks to God on a regular basis? You know, sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, I, I just, you know, that, it feels uncomfortable. You know, or I, you know, I don't feel like saying those things sometimes, especially like in church or anything. And to that I would say, Repent. Repent like to sing okay well then repent because he tells us to it's not about feeling it it's not about wanting to it's because he's worthy he's worthy you know in in hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 it tells us the writer there commands us he says therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to god continually that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name That's why it's called a sacrifice, because it's not always because you feel like it. I guarantee you that that every Jewish person that was coming and and bringing, you know, little sheepy or fluffy or whatever because they blew it was not all like, happy to be here, yelled at the wife, and now I've got to kill another animal, you know? Thing cost me a bunch of money, and now I can't use it for myself because I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, but I'm happy about it. I don't imagine anybody was thinking to themselves, I've got to go to the tabernacle now after whatever happened, happened. You know, I don't, I, there were times when they, it was a free will offering, right, that they did, and it was exciting. A peace offering was great. Burnt offering, great. But not the sin offering and the trespass offering. You walked up and you put your hand on that thing and you're thinking, this creature needs to die because I blew it. There are many times we don't feel like it, but we offer a sacrifice of praise because he's worthy. That's what worship is. It means ascribing worth to someone, That's part of how we worship, is with our lips. But worship also, it's why it's a part, is worship also involves action as well as words. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, the four and 20 elders, they fell down before him that sat on the throne. They worship him that lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, thou art worthy. But we see action here as well. They say things, but they also do things. We see, first off, they fall down before him that sat on the throne, we can one way we can ascribe worth to God is through our actions. You know? The fall down, it means to bow down before worship. The idea of crediting something to God that He is worthy of, we can do it by physical expression. We can do it by kneeling. We can do it by bowing. We can do it by raising our hands. You say, well, why do I raise your hands? I can understand maybe kneeling and bowing, but what's the raising hands thing? Well, it's interesting. Have you ever heard what, what an officer says to someone when they're arresting them? Come out with your hands up. That's why we're singing that song. I lift my hands a sign of surrender. You know, if I don't want to be tickled, I don't do this. I do this, you know? Don't tickle me. The idea here, you're protecting yourself. If you are being pummeled, you're going to try to protect yourself. You don't go hit me with your best shot. I'm great. But that's what we do when we surrender, when we yield, is we're saying, Lord, I trust you. I surrender to you. All, all of my vulnerabilities, I, I, I trust you with it. That's why we lift our hands up. Or, as you learn in school, what do you do if you know the answer? You raise your hands. There's a lot of times that you know you just raise your hands. And we go. That's true. That is true. That is the right answer. You know, and you're, It's like saying amen, but with your hand. You know. So there are many ways that we can ascribe worth to God through our action. We see this example in Scripture in Nehemiah. Ooh, I got to hurry. We're getting toward the end. Nehemiah eight verse ten. Nehemiah eight verse ten. I want to read it to you. When Ezra is reading the scriptures to the people, when he's done. In Nehemiah 8, verse 6, sorry, I think I may have said verse 10. It's Nehemiah 8, verse 6. It says this, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In Psalm 63, in our Scripture, you read where David said, you know, I will lift up my hands unto your name. In 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul commands all men everywhere to lift up holy hands. It's not an option. It's not something where, you know, you say, well, you know, I'm not a hand lifter. Okay, well, then I would lovingly and gently challenge you to repent because God commands it. That doesn't mean we need to be walking around with our hands up all the time. Obviously, it's appropriate at a certain time. But my point is, if you're just not going to do it because, well, I don't do it. I'm not a hand lifter. I would say repent because God commands you to. Commands us to lift up our hands. In Psalm 134, verses 1 and 2, it echoes that same command. It says to us, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. So, Obviously, every time's not a moment for that, that's not my point, and no one's going to be come around checking boxes going who's, who's lifting their hands up. I, I, that's between you and the Lord. But if the Lord's prompting you, don't just do it, you say, "Well, that's not my personality or that's not my, my mentality. Worship isn't about any of those things. Next, we see they cast their crowns down before the Lord. Now we've already learned that those crowns are something that we're working for in the sense that we want we want to get those crowns. We're we're striving for those things, right? Paul says, I keep my body under so I can obtain this crown. It's not that the crowns aren't valuable, it's the fact that our prize for living faithfully pales in comparison to being with the Lord. Being with the Lord, you're like this thing doesn't compare. And so that they throw them down shows that the Lord is so much very more deserving of those crowns than we are. The idea is when we think of, "Lord, you gave me this awesome crown for what I did," doesn't seem to measure up. But if you were to wear the crown, it does seem to measure up, right? And so that's why they say you are worthy to receive glory and honor, you know? It makes sense for the Lord to receive these crowns instead of us. That's what the word worthy means. It means of comparable value or merit. It matches up, the scales are even. And so they say, Lord, you made us. We didn't make ourselves. And anything we did right was, wasn't because of our idea or our goodness that accomplished it. You did it through us. So you deserve it. And so we don't have crowns yet. But this shows another way that we can ascribe worth to God, to worship him, is through our time, our energy, and our resources, you know, that, that God has given us other things. And when we choose to serve or give them away for him, we're saying that, God is worth the loss of time. He's worth the loss of that energy. He's worth the loss of those resources. And that's what Hebrews thirteen sixteen goes on to say. Right after it talks about honoring God and praising God and worshiping God with our lips, it then tells us to do so with our, with our sacrifice. It says, but to do good and to communicate, to share, to give, to help someone out. It says, don't forget, for with such sacrifices, God is well-pleased. So we worship God through our sacrifice. And then, of course, we also worship God through our obedience. Another way we ascribe worth to our God is through action is when we decide to please him by obeying him. They say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive all these things because you've created us. And for your pleasure, they are and were created. In 1 Samuel 15, we read about it last Sunday night where... Um, Samuel tells Saul, for obedience is better than sacrifice, right? Better. Obedience. In Romans 12, 1, it says that, you know, we should present our bodies as living sacrifices unto the Lord, which is our reasonable, it's a logical act of worship that we should do. Now, this also means that our corporate worship that we do together here in church, that means it must always be in line with the Bible, right? It's not just a big free-for-all. Things called worship that go against Scripture are actually rebellion and not worship. Doing so is no different than Saul's excuse. Say, oh, I'm just worshiping the Lord when you're doing something that the Bible says not to do. You know, that's no different than Saul's excuse that the animals were spared so we could sacrifice them to the Lord. At Calvary Chapel Orlando, we are obedient to Paul's command that all things be done decently and in order. That is not quenching the Spirit. That's true worship because obedience is part of our worship. For it says, for your pleasure they are and were created. By your will, your desire, your purpose, your plan, we were made. And that's what we were created for, was to worship him. None of us were created for ourselves. We're not to live for ourselves. We are created to worship God. And while worship is an act of the will, it's not something that is forced upon us, it's not an optional part of life, and it's certainly not an optional part of Christianity. And that's why the phrase, I don't like the worship at that church, or I'm not really in the mood to worship today, misses the whole point of worship. It's not about us. You know, it's, it's not in any way for us. You know, the band is not up here to entertain you. You're the worship band. They're just helping you get started. You're the worship team, not them. You know, they're just helping you get going. Because it's for the Lord. He's the audience. He's the congregation. He's the one we worship, and that means when I have that mentality, I can worship him with my lips and with my actions, even when the musical style or the atmosphere doesn't match my preferences. I can worship him with my lips and my actions even when I'm not feeling loved, or I'm not feeling thankful, or I'm not even feeling obedient. I can still do it because he's worthy, amen? You know, Christians all over the world, as the worship team comes up, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a minute. But Christians all over the world and throughout time, they've worshiped God in unique styles and unique environments. I, I imagine if, you know, we pulled someone from across the world into our church environment, they go, well, that's different, you know. Or if we pulled, pulled someone from a different time period into our environment, we go, that's different, you know. And if we were in a different place, we might think the same thing. Well, that's a little different. Christians all over the world and throughout time have worshipped God in unique styles and in unique environments. Christians all over the world and throughout time have lived for God, have worshipped him in action in times of favor and in times of persecution because that's what we're created for, to worship God, to know him, to honor him. And one of the beauties of taking the Lord's Supper is that that's a great time to recommit ourselves to that, right? To say, Lord, it's about you, it's not about me. It's a great time to remember who our king is and how worthy he is of our entire lives. Because here's the truth. By stepping out of you know, heaven into our world, he was communicating to us how much he loved us. You know, Because it's in love that he created you, right? It's in love that he became a man to rescue you. It's in love that he died on the cross for you. And as we sang as well earlier It's in love that he's coming back for us, right? So my encouragement to you this morning is we are getting our hearts ready to remember what Jesus did for us, his great sacrifice for us, his great love for us, the great covenant he gave to us. Don't wait until Revelation chapter four happens to tell him he's worthy. Don't wait till then. We can do it with our lips and with our actions today, tomorrow, and every day afterwards. Let's be those who do that. Let's all pray. Lord, we thank you for this time and we do want to honor you, Lord, with our lips and with our actions. And so, Lord, as we remember what you did for us on the cross and what you did for us by becoming a man, what you did for us by rising again and instituting this new covenant with us, where we stand clean before you, forgiven forever, your sons and daughters. Lord, as we remember that, we want to recommit ourselves to say, Lord, we want to worship you with all our being to love you supremely back for the great love you've shown to us. As we remember your sacrifice, Lord, we lay our lives down and we say, Lord, you have everything. We choose to worship you both with our lips, through glorifying you, praising you, honoring you, thanking you, and by our actions, Lord, through sometimes physical expressions, through our sacrifice and through our obedience. Lord, we give this time to you to recommit that, And we thank you for your love in Jesus' name, amen.